BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human-moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Newt. 2020 is going to be one of the most extraordinary election years of our lifetime. I want to invite you to join my inner circle as we discuss each twist and turn in the presidential race in my members-only Inner Circle Club. You'll receive special flash briefings, online events, and members-only audio reports from me and my team. Here is a special offer for my podcast listeners. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. And if you sign up for a one- or two-year membership, you'll get 10% off your membership price and a VIP Fast Pass to my live events. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. Use the code podcast at checkout. Sign up today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast and use the code podcast. Hurry, this offer expires February 14th. In this episode of Newt's World, this is the second episode in our three-part series about China, and we're looking at what it is like to live in modern-day communist China. When Xi Jinping became president of China, we imagined a more open Chinese society. Xi Jinping became the general secretary of the Communist Party of China, the chairman of the Central Military Commission, and the president of the People's Republic of China. During his tenure, there has been a significant increase in censorship and mass surveillance, significant deterioration in human rights, and the removal of term limits for the president. To some, he's considered the most powerful and influential person in the world. To others, he's a totalitarian dictator. My guests today speak candidly about their experiences with human rights in China. I'm pleased to introduce my guests, Michael Castor, a human rights advocate 
researcher, and civil society consultant who has lived and worked in China, and Dr. Tung Biao, a Chinese dissident, human rights lawyer, and adjunct professor at Hunter College, City University of New York. Michael, what's your background and how did you get interested in this? In 2008, I went to China after finishing my bachelor's degree right after the Olympics. And I thought I was going to stay for a few months, maybe six months or something like that. Their typical time abroad, gain some experience and go back to the U.S. But it was such a critical time in China. And I was fortunate to be connected with some really courageous human rights defenders. And it was sort of a baptism by fire for me in the human rights movement, in working with people on the ground, in the civil society movement, in an authoritarian state. And it was just so exciting and it felt so meaningful and impactful that what initially was going to be a few months has basically turned into the last 10 years of my life. That's amazing. And, and have you been able just to travel anywhere you wanted to? Well, you know, in 2008, 9, 10, it was a very different China. Certainly the government was just as oppressive and it was very much still an authoritarian state. But I think with the Internet, the government has been more able to surveil individuals and their movement. It's become much more sophisticated in tracking people. So the repression has gotten much greater, the capacity of the state. So that, you know, 10 years ago, you could travel easier to places. You could meet with people more securely. But I do remember many times that we would have to still be very careful about where we met and what types of conversations we had. We would sometimes go out to parks, uh, places where we knew there wouldn't be people sitting around listening. If you're in a cafe or something, you don't know for certain. There was still very much a concern about listening devices. Digital security concerns were still an issue, nowhere near as much as they are now. So there were constraints, there were challenges, but it was easier, I think, to mitigate those challenges. It was easier to be involved in a civil society movement 10 years ago, whereas now, through political and technical reasons, the government has really very successfully cut off the ability of actors on the ground in China to operate, at least in the same way that we used to. Now, of course, there's places where you just can't travel freely. You know if you go someplace, like Xinjiang, for example, you know that you're putting yourself at risk, you're putting people you meet at risk. So it's much, much more difficult now to travel around. But I personally haven't been back to China since 2015, shortly before the crackdown on my former organization. And now I wouldn't feel safe going to the country at all. Obviously, we've seen a number of cases of foreigners being detained and held for long periods of time. And because a number of my colleagues have been detained or tortured or expelled from the country, I certainly wouldn't want to risk it now. In my new book on Trump versus China, I admit that I was one of those who, for a while, thought that the Southern tour and the language of Deng Xiaoping about markets actually had a deeper meaning. In fact, this really is a Leninist totalitarian system. Do you think there was a period where they were almost trying to shift and then it failed, or they just gotten better technologies of repression? I do think that it's really unfortunate that a lot of countries in the democratic, rule of law, human rights respecting West in the 90s had a belief that economic liberalization would lead to political liberalization, the South Korea model. 
I think that was flawed. And we, we've seen it now And that China has become the second largest economy in the world. And it's more totalitarian now than it was in the 90s. And whether those were authentic, economic or, or rule of law liberalizations that the government was doing because they wanted to be an equal participant in a you know liberal international order that believed in rule of law, that believed in you know private property, individual rights, human rights, and so forth, because they thought it was actually a superior way, or if they were doing it only because they knew that was what would give them greater market access. They took advantage, certainly, of the fact that in you know this sort of Marxian analysis, there was this race to the bottom and that global producers were looking to exploit very cheap labor in China. And so in as much as the government of China, I think, is to blame for the increasing authoritarianism, a lot of the capitalist, democratic, rule of law respecting Western governments and countries are also very much to blame because we moved production to China. We allowed the government to develop as economically as it did while constantly for the last two decades granting them political concessions, overlooking human rights violations because we wanted that market share, we wanted that market access. And we just look at what's happening most recently with the NBA, with Blizzard, with Marriott, with Cafe Pacific, with this litany of international companies, major brands, Apple computers, really caving to demands from China. And it's really concerning the way that China's been able to, for a long time, leverage economic power uh, to manipulate this false belief that economic liberalization guaranteed leads to political liberalization. And now we see an economically powerful, very totalitarian state, which is, is hard to confront and to challenge because governments and companies are very hesitant to sacrifice what they see as the economic gains that they've made. From your perspective, is Xi Jinping simply a symptom of an underlying machine that wanted somebody to increase the coercion, or is he a major factor in shifting their policy towards dramatically more sophisticated coercion? It's a really interesting question. It's really fascinating because there are certainly a lot of nuances there. And I think that one mistake that people make, of course, the party is not a monolithic entity. There are factions within the party. And we certainly saw that when Xi Jinping first came to power, the purge of Bo Xilai, for example, the anti-corruption campaign that he waged in the early years was very much about identifying and purging party opponents. So there is that factionalism that happens. So he's part of one group that exists within the party, and there's other groups. Whether he's a symptom himself or an individual who has risen in power, it may be difficult to say exactly, as I'm not an expert on elite party politics. But what I can say is that under Xi Jinping, consequentially, we have someone who is more totalitarian, more powerful than any leader since Mao Zedong. And that's really very concerning because, of course, Mao Zedong died in 1976, and he was part of that era of the 20th century of totalitarian leaders around the world. And under Xi Jinping, and unfortunately in a number of other countries, we are seeing this sort of return to a level of nationalist, totalitarian, strongman leaders, as Xi Jinping is perhaps the most successful of all of them, not just in what he's been able to do through physical coercion, fashion, intimidation, but harnessing all of the tools available of the technological revolution, artificial intelligence, the surveillance state that exists, pioneered in places like Xinjiang, and then rolled out in other parts of the country, but not only through that domestically, but also internationally. 
under Xi Jinping, China has been more assertive, more intrusive in the domestic politics, the internal affairs of any other country. Anytime that a foreign leader or a journalist or a public figure makes a comment about China, the first thing that the voice of the party, state news or party officials will say is, this is an unwanted interference in the internal affairs of China. And yet, China does this all the time. China influences elections. China spies. China steals technology. It bullies and intimidates companies and governments to fall into line through economic might and through other things. So certainly, for one reason or another, and as important as I think to understand some of the factors that led to it, at the point we're at, we also need to recognize Xi Jinping is the strongest and is the most authoritarian leader that China has seen in a long time and confront him where we are now. One of the things I was struck with recently, Mayor Bloomberg did this interview where he explained that China is really not a dictatorship, that they have to satisfy the people or the system will break down. And I read that and I looked at Hong Kong and I looked at other things and I couldn't quite figure out how he got there. And yet you saw it again with the NBA. You see it with the head of Apple, which is one of the two or three highest capitalized companies in the world. I mean, if Apple can't afford to stand up to China, it's pretty hard to imagine who could. I think a lot of us who work on China, those of us who work on human rights in China, civil society issues, really were left shocked at this out-of-touch perspective. Of course, it was you know, the most recent example is, is uh, Mayor Bloomberg, but plenty of people have a very misplaced understanding of exactly what the Communist Party of China is and how much power they're willing to cede to popular will and, and opinions. There's really very little truth in that unless you were to be foolish enough into believing that the people of China support Xi Jinping there hasn't been an outright revolution to oust him. But the level of control that the party exercises certainly is nothing that resembles any form of democratic representative government. And it's concerning when people who are in positions of power, who are stakeholders, their interaction with China, how they might be called upon to hold the country accountable, is going to be influenced by that, and China will continue to influence and to control the agenda, as they very successfully have done in many, many cases. We've seen recently, in the last few months, both the ambassador Canada and Sweden to China being recalled back to Ottawa and Stockholm, and a formal investigation, actually, into the former Swedish ambassador to China being launched because of having effectively been turned to pro-China sentiments, manipulating their home country policies because they had been so successfully swayed by China. People like Bloomberg or former Senator Lieberman, who is now registered as a foreign agent because of lobbying he has done for China. We really see how concerned it is when influential stakeholders have this flawed perception of China. Coming up, coercive custody or secret detention in China is a regular occurrence. Michael Castor explains next. This is week six of my profile plan journey, and Debbie and I are on this together, and we're discussing social support with our profile coach, Abby. 
Newton Debbie. I'm so excited to talk about social support this week. We're really going to talk about how family and friends can support you throughout your weight loss journey. It's important to have a conversation with those close to you and let them know how they can best support you in reaching your weight loss goals. My wife, Callista, is very supportive, and so are the people that we're closest to, about my weight loss goals. She's constantly encouraging me to make better food choices and to do more exercise on a daily basis. Frankly, when people just walk up to me and say, boy, you look like you've been losing weight, I find that encourages me to continue. With your support, Abby, you got me ready for a vacation. And with the support of my family, I stayed with the plan that you and I came up with of increasing exercise. Everybody supported me. Even when I decided to go off plan a little bit, they kept me from lapsing into really bad habits. It's great to have somebody along with you on this journey, which is great that you two, Newt and Debbie, are doing this profile journey together. We constantly are making fun of each other because we're drinking both so much water that when we're in the office together, we run into each other constantly by the restroom door. I must say, even things as simple as making sure you have enough liquid so that you're keeping your body fully up to speed, I think is a significant step. Having someone that can understand you and relate to both the success and victories is important on your journey. We typically see that our members lose more weight with family and friends because they're there to support you and encourage you on a day-to-day basis. Next week, we're going to talk about personalized coaching. Sign up now to start losing weight today. You can do it with a profile coach like Abby, guiding you every step of the way. Go to profileplan.com slash newt. Right now, Newt's World listeners can get an exclusive offer, $100 off a one-year profile membership by visiting profileplan.com slash newt. Get your health journey started today with a free profile coach consultation at your nearest profile location or by visiting profileplan.com slash N-E-W-T. In your book, The People's Republic of the Disappeared, Stories from Inside China's System for Enforced Disappearance, You document 11 different cases of Chinese citizens disappearing. Could you take a couple of those and just, for the average American, walk them through how the system operates? The book is mostly focused on one type of coercive custody in China, which is a type of secret detention known as residential surveillance at a designated location. And you can't get really more Orwellian euphemistic than that. It sounds nice. Residential surveillance. Okay. But what this amounts to is a mechanism within the criminal procedure law that allows the police to take somebody and hold them in secret for up to six months. They have no access to a lawyer, even the state prosecutor, which in more functioning legal systems is supposed to have access to detainees to make sure there's no abuse taking place. Likewise, access to a lawyer, immediate access to a lawyer, is a fundamental procedural safeguard to prevent against torture and other things. But in China, none of these things exist. And under residential surveillance at a designated location, or RSDL, individuals are often subjected to cruel and unusual treatment, ranging from sleep deprivation that can last for days, 
forced malnourishment, also forced medication, being made to take medicine that causes severe anxiety, heart palpitations, things that can have irreversible long-term impacts. They're subjected to stress positions, made to sit on chairs that are designed to cut off the circulation to limbs, that your legs go numb. And it can also have, again, irreversible nerve damage, also electrocution, various forms of torture. They're interrogated in this time period. Threats to them, threats to their family, threats to their loved ones are made. And this can last for weeks. And then they're kept for upwards of six months afterwards, as I said. Forced confessions are also very commonly relied upon during RSDL. Forced confession, which is highly scripted and then often broadcast on state television. But we've seen some forced confessions that are then also broadcast internationally, either through Chinese state television or even in some other rebroadcasts that are under the guise of a news report or news media. And so what you have is really an institutionalized form of secret and arbitrary detention, which can amount to an enforced disappearance. And an enforced disappearance is when the state takes somebody, refuses to acknowledge their fate or whereabouts, you know, simply put. But it's not only a human rights violation. An enforced disappearance is really a very serious crime under international law. And when it's widespread or systematic, it actually can qualify as a crime against humanity. Now, there are many heinous actions around the world being perpetrated by governments on marginalized communities. And though I think we need to be very careful when we start to throw around terms like crimes against humanity. But I think it's important still to look at the text of the law itself, the Rome Statute, for example, of the International Criminal Court. If you applied only the letter of the law, the frequency in which China disappears people, how institutionalized it is through a series of laws, it very well could qualify as a crime against humanity. And that's why it's so serious. It's not ad hoc. It's not individual cases. It's really something that's become systematized. Wasn't one of the most famous movie stars in China a woman who was faced with this kind of house arrest and was literally disappeared for like six months, even though she was one of the highest paid people in Chinese movies? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So this is an actress named Fan Bingbing, who not only one of the highest paid actresses in China, in the Chinese film industry, she was actually at one point, according to Forbes, the highest paid actress in the world. Incredibly well known in China, in a lot of international films as well. She was in X-Men, she was in Tomb Raiders. She's a big actress and a big name. This would be like if Jennifer Lawrence or somebody were to suddenly disappear in the U.S. And the reason basically that the state gave was that there was financial crimes involved. But, you know, the speculation really is that she was such a powerful figure that she represented some type of counterweight to the authority of the party, and that in order to send a signal to other potentially corrupt, potentially powerful or influential public figures, that no one is above the party. And so she was disappeared and kept for months until she was released. And, and as with many cases of enforced disappearance in China, she was released finally after having also delivered basically a, a forced apology that was broadcast on Chinese television. But not only her, also there's, I think, another really important case to point to was the disappearance of the former president of Interpol, who was taken on a trip back from France 
taken in China and held likewise for months. His wife, who still lives in France, is effectively in witness protection because the family is still afraid that agents of the Chinese state will try and take them and force them back to China. So what we see with Fan Bingbing, what we see with Mahonwei's case, what we see with a number of other individuals, is that no one is above the reach of the party, and that especially in the last half decade since Xi Jinping has come to power, one of the most effective tools of exerting the power of the party is through these various mechanisms that allow for lengthy secret detention. For the average Chinese, there must be a continuous sense of insecurity. It's important to recognize that this is a reality for people who are engaged in developing the rule of law, people who are victims of government abuses. But a lot of average Chinese people don't necessarily think about this. They don't necessarily know about this. A lot of the information, of course, that we have about the extent of human rights abuses doesn't reach a lot of people in the country because of controlled information flow. But for individuals who are part of the human rights movement, who are active civil society lawyers or independent, semi-independent journalists or bloggers, petitioners, individuals of that nature, they certainly are aware of this. They're certainly the targets of this sort of terror campaign by the government. They themselves have probably been taken, or they know people who have been taken, who have just disappeared one day, maybe reemerge a few months later, or maybe not. A former colleague of mine, incredibly brave, committed, devoted lawyer named Wang Chuanjiang, in August of 2015, he sent a message to a couple of us saying that he had been in hiding. He was okay. We weren't sure what had happened to him. He had disappeared for a couple of weeks. And he said, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm in hiding. I'm very worried that I'm going to be taken, but I'm going to move to another place and I think I'll be okay. And that was the last we heard of him. A few days later, he disappeared. For three and a half years, there was no sign of him. There was no word of him. We believed we knew where he was being held, but for three and a half years, can you imagine? No lawyer, no family member, no one is able to see or hear from him until this past Christmas, December 26th, the day after Christmas, after three and a half years of disappearance, the government put him on trial, a kangaroo court, charged him, sentenced him, he disappeared again, his wife was finally allowed to see him nearly four years after he had disappeared. This is a terrifying shockwave that is sent through all of the human rights community. They know about it, hundreds of people, but much of the average person in China, if they even know about these things, they believe the state propaganda that he was a criminal of some sort. When you describe something as horrifying as that, how much of that and the knowledge that that exists is a part of what has motivated the people in Hong Kong to so aggressively oppose coming within the Chinese mainland judicial system? Certainly in Hong Kong, people are much more aware. They have free access to information. At least until now, there is still freedom of press. There isn't the same type of internet restrictions, of course. So they have access to more information. With Hong Kong in 2015, it became a very well-known, famous case of what were called the Hong Kong booksellers 
It was a group of publishers who mostly published what we would really consider in the West as sort of sensationalist profiles of high-level party officials or other public officials. They were targeted because they were embarrassing to the state. One of them is a British citizen, a man named Libwa, who was literally kidnapped off the streets of Hong Kong, thrown into a van, driven into the mainland, and reappeared in mainland China later, claiming that he had gone to China of his own free will. This is a British citizen, Hong Kong resident. Another case at the same time, his colleague, a man named Gui Minhai, born in mainland China, Hong Kong resident, but a Swedish citizen. He was in Thailand in October 2015, and he was kidnapped from Pattaya by Chinese agents, smuggled across the border, and he wasn't heard from for months until he appeared on Chinese television claiming that he had gone back to China of his own free will. He remains in China now. Gui Minhai remains in China. He's actually been forced to deliver three televised forced confessions, and he's still in China. He was one time in the presence of two consular officials from the Swedish embassy on a train on his way to Beijing. Chinese officials came onto the train, took him away from the Swedish consular officials because they were worried that they were bringing him to the embassy to then get him out of the country. So these are Hong Kong residents that are also citizens of other countries, British and Swedish in this case. And what happened to them, their treatment is well known in Hong Kong. And often when Hong Kong residents are talking about fears of extradition to China, these are the types of cases that are fresh in their mind. I mean, talking about millions of people who are taken to the streets, they have a lot of different collective action frames that draw them to the streets. But these are some of, I think, the really impactful cases that are on the minds of a lot of people in Hong Kong, certainly. From the standpoint of the United States, what do you think we should be doing in response to this? I think it's really disheartening the years that foreign governments across the board have overlooked gross human rights violations, gross abuses of its people from religious persecution of Muslim or Tibetan Buddhist minorities or Christians to arbitrary detention, torture. I mean, the list goes on. And it's been consistently overlooked. The country's been given concessions for economic or other reasons. And it's really appalling that millions of people are allowed to suffer because countries are not willing to hold the perpetrator accountable. And now we're slowly seeing some changes. I think the news in the last few weeks from the United States, the recent announcements, State Department starting to blacklist certain entities for their involvement in human rights abuses in Xinjiang is a very welcome and necessary step, but it doesn't necessarily go far enough. And there's other things that the U.S. government can certainly be doing. It's starting to do those, such as labeling certain Chinese media entities as foreign agents, which strips them of the ability to pretend that they're objective news reporting, when in fact they are really outlets of propaganda. But there's a lot more that can be done. And I think that economic sanctions, pushing back on companies themselves, is a part of it. But also the United States as a great tool at its disposal in the Global Magnitsky Act. And the Global Magnitsky Act is a fairly recent piece of legislation. A lot of people don't know about it, but it allows at an executive level to put an individual sanction financial and travel visa restriction on 
officials who are responsible for gross human rights violations or corruption issues. And there's a number of Chinese officials who very much should be targeted with the Magnitsky Act as well. Chen Chuanguo, the party secretary of Xinjiang, for example, the Nia Shenxi, the former head of CCTV, and others. So I think there's political tools that can be pursued, but very much the need to pursue economic, more coercive measures to hold China accountable to what it's doing. But also the United States should lead other countries and support other countries to do the same. The Magnitsky Act is one example that also exists in Canada, it exists in the United Kingdom, in Estonia, Sweden, and a few other countries in the EU are potentially close to passing their own. The United States can help these countries to push through similar legislation or to work in coordination with other nations to hold China accountable. It's true, China is very powerful economically, and it's difficult for many countries, but in coalition with other governments, there's a much greater chance of holding Chinese perpetrators accountable. The way you're describing the practical operation of China today, there really aren't any true human rights. I mean, if you're a citizen of China, you actually don't have any structure of authority or structure of law that you could hide behind if, in fact, they want to come get you. I mean, is that a fair statement? Overall, Newt, you're absolutely right. There isn't really any fully functioning, systemic rule of law. The judiciary is not independent. Even defense law firms are required to have party cells within them. The party has made it very clear that a lawyer's obligation, first and foremost, is to the party, not to their client. This is obviously a slap in the face of any concept of, of the rule of law and the independence of the judiciary. And the law in China, as much as the law in various other authoritarian states, is used not as a tool to protect citizens, but is used as a tool to oppress citizens and to enforce the will and power of the party. Next why we as Americans should care about China's human rights abuses. Michael, can you just tell me from a very basic point of view, why should Americans care? we should always care. We're all people and we all deserve the same treatment. It's in the fundamental universality of human rights. And not only should we be moved by the oppression and the mistreatment of our neighbors, we should be equally moved by the repression and mistreatment of people who might happen to be thousands of miles away. That's on a moral level or on a legal level, because it is part of international law. It is universal. But I think there's also, on a very practical, on a very tangible level, we need to be concerned about this because we have very clearly seen China's long arm through economic or military or political incursions and influence, not only into Australian or Canadian, but to American systems, academic, political, and otherwise. And very much if we take our freedoms as something that we feel are important to protect, we need to recognize that 
they are interconnected. And if we allow governments in other countries to trample on the rights of their citizens, they will eventually become so emboldened that they begin to trample on the rights of others internationally. We see that as governments and countries become more powerful, and we very much see that with China now. And so we care about our own rights as U.S. citizens. We also need to recognize that the treatment of Chinese people is also very much linked to the preservation of our own rights and freedoms. This has been terrific. Thanks so much, Nuna. It was really a pleasure. Michael Castor's book, The People's Republic of the Disappeared, Stories from Inside China's System of Enforced Disappearances, introduces us to the story of Dr. Tang Biao. You'll hear his candid story of disappearance next. I want to tell you about a remarkably useful app that you should have on your phone. It's called Blinkist. As Speaker of the House, I find keeping up with issues of the day, reading constantly just to know what's going on, is something that I both take pleasure in, but is also a necessity. I also travel a lot, and I find the easiest way to bring reading materials with me without carrying a pile of books and newspapers is to use a very informative app, and Blinkist may be the very best. It's really unique. With one account, you can access multiple devices. The app is on my phone and my iPad. Blinkist takes the best key takeaways, the need to know information from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. I think Blinkist really matters because it gives you the main points of a book, which then helps you evaluate which books you want to read all of. Two of the ones I really recommend are James Donovan's Shoot for the Moon and Fred Kaplan's Dark Territory about the secret history of cyber war. Check them out and see what you think. It's a great concept. Blinkist will give you a way to get big ideas in small packages. It'll help make you more effective and more efficient, and you can start learning now. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want, and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com newt. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash Newt to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash Newt. Dr. Tang Biao, what's it like to be detained by the Chinese government? I was kidnapped and detained for three times, but I was never detained in a legal detention center or a prison. Every time I was detained in a black black jail, I didn't even know where these prisons located. It looked like a hotel, like a training center, and I was tortured there. I was put under a solitary confinement. It's a extreme form of solitary confinement. I was prohibited to read, to write, to contact with my family or lawyer. And I was forced to wear a handcuff 24-7 and lasting 70 days. And I was forced to sit down on the ground in a fixed position facing the wall. If I moved a little bit, I would be beaten. So uh, many humorous lawyers and, and activists 
experienced the, the similar culture in, in 2011. And it's rampant, this uh, enforced disappearance and, and torture and abduction. The Chinese government, especially the, the state security, don't respect the constitution and, and laws at all. So what was happening to your family while you were going through all this? So I was disappeared for three times, and my family, my wife and my kids had no idea where I was. They were so scared, and my house was broken in, and they searched my entire house, took away my computers and my books, and so my kids were very young at that time. So I think their mental damage was there, and it was difficult to be remedied. Even after I went to the United States, my family became a target. So when I came to the United States, one of my children, my wife, my daughter were prevented from leaving China. So it's obvious that they were used by Chinese government as hostages. They used my wife and my daughter to punish me and to silence me. When we asked them why they were stopped from going to the United States and the Chinese government officials told them it's because of my political activities, my much work. And they didn't tell us how long we could have a family reunion. So eventually we decided to smuggle them out. So it was a risky journey from China, uh, Burma border to Laos to Thailand they uh, arrived in the United States. You got to go to the Chinese University of Hong Kong as a visiting scholar. Given your run-ins with the police, why did they let you go to Hong Kong? I was invited by Chinese University of Hong Kong. My passport was confiscated in 2008. Before that, I visited the United States and France and a few other countries, and I criticized Chinese government as I did in China. I was even a visiting scholar at Yale Law School in 2007. But after that, they took away my passport, and I was kept in China for five years. And then in late 2012, I don't know why, but when I applied for a new passport, they did give me, and then I received the inf- uh, invitation from Chinese University of Hong Kong, and I went to Hong Kong. So um, I think it's quite arbitrary when Chinese government decides who can go out, who cannot. Some outspoken activists should go out and go back, and some other activists were never allowed to leave China. So the decision is very arbitrary, and there is no rule of law. And of course, it's against the law when the government stops people from international travel. If I understand your experience, there is no real rule of law in China. If the police want to, they just make up their own rules. There's no rule of law in China. The court, the judges are controlled by 
the Communist Party. The Constitution is not bad if we read the articles that uh, all these kind of fundamental human rights and freedom, like uh, right to vote, uh, religious freedom, freedom of expression, all these things were uh, written in Chinese Constitution. But of course, they are not respected, they are not uh, implemented. And the police, the government officials, abuse power every day, especially when dealing with politically sensitive uh, cases. Do you think it's gotten worse with Xi Jinping or better? It's getting much, much worse. When Xi Jinping came to power, it's totally different. The crackdown, the persecution were so severe that every force of the civil society has been targeted. Lawyers, journalists, independent scholars, dissident, NGO activists, underground churches, and internet, Tibetans and Uyghurs. The human rights situation has been deteriorating very, very much. Listen, I want to thank you. This has been extraordinary. You have great courage. What you're doing, I think, is very important. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. In my new book, Trump versus China, Facing America's Greatest Threat, I describe in detail the new era of competition with communist-ruled China that the United States now faces. It impacts every American, and it is important to understand and recognize how we got to where we are today and what we must do as a country to survive. I encourage you to pick up a copy of Trump versus China, available October 22nd. Thank you to my guests, Dr. Tung Biao and Michael Castor. You can learn more about what it's like to live in modern-day communist China on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Westwood One. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, and our producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our editor is Robert Borowski, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. Our guest booker is Grace Davis. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. The music was composed by Joey Salvia. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360 and Westwood One's John Wardock and Robert Mathers. Please email me with your comments at newt at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. On the next episode of Newt's World, we're continuing our three-part series on China, taking a closer look at China and Russia's strategic alliance. Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping have met seven times over the past year. They've met 24 times since 2013, so they obviously have prioritized this on the political level. Whoever dominates Asia is a global power. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. The Westwood One Podcast Network. 
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human-moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iheart radio's iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free ever thought about owning a piece of history introducing the newt gingrich contract with america coin from legacy precious metals my limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic republican victory in 1994 marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com.